morning. <laughs> Psalm 123. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease of the contempt of the proud. This is the word of the Thanks, Claire. Thanks, Rachel. Uh, like Rachel said about a thousand times, my name's Andrew. Did anyone notice, notice that? You said my name a lot? He did, yeah. Um, but also, and far more importantly, like Rachel said, uh, it's all about Jesus. Um, that's why we meet. That's why we do this weird thing, like getting together on a Sunday morning. It's all about Jesus. Uh, one of the things, um, if, you, if you are new, new to church, if you're new to this church, you'll notice that we read the Bible a lot. Even at the very, very start today, what would we do? We, we recited some of the Bible together. Um, and the reason we do that is uh, we believe that the Bible is God speaking to us. In the simplest form, that's what, we, that's what we believe. We believe the Bible is God speaking to us, right? And you might think, well, that's a really weird thing to think, uh, that you would, you would have this ancient book and you would live your life by it. Um, but the truth is that we all live our lives by some principles, don't we? Even if you're religious, a-religious, atheist, whatever you are, you, you, you live your life by guiding principles. And what we believe is that the, the guiding principles in the Bible, more than that, is God speaking to us, is the, the secret to life, the secret to the universe. So why would we not follow this book, right? It's a, it's a beautiful thing. Um, and so what we do is uh, we, we take books of the Bible, portions of the Bible at a time, and, and each week we just work our way through. Um, and we'll have some teaching on that on a Sunday morning, um, and we'll let that inform how we worship God, we'll let that inform how we pray, and then uh, as we meet together in a missional community throughout the week, as Rachel mentioned, um, we seek to then just try and apply that to our lives in more detail. How does that actually apply to my life? This, the, the Word of God says this, well, that, I find that really hard. Can we talk about how that's hard for me, and, and how I can really make that apply to my life? We also have uh, core groups as well. So we, we want to we really push these core groups a bit more. So these are, these are groups of, of three to four people who get together regularly and really want to be accountable to one another. That's a, that's, a, that's a pretty popular word in Christian circles, accountability, isn't it? What does it mean? It just means, it just means like being honest. I'm finding this really hard this week. I'm finding applying God's word really hard. I've messed up all these ways. Can you help me walk this path? Can you help me figure out how to do this? Can you pray for me? Can you encourage me? Can we see what God has, has said about this? And, and these are some of the ways that we just take the Bible and try to apply it in our lives. Um, but we need to be careful as well. And I know I realize I'm rambling on here, but it's important that we get these things right. The Bible is not God. We worship God. We don't worship the Bible. We worship what the Bible says, who God is. We worship the God of the Bible. And that's an important distinction. Because all of this, the reason we obey the Bible, the reason we believe it's God's word, the reason we seek to practice all these things is because God is God and we are not. And that's the theme of today, that God is God and you are not, right? And we're in this series, uh, part of the Psalms. I don't know if you've ever realized this before, but the book of Psalms in the Bible, um, it's kind of like the, Bible, the, the Bible's hymn book, prayer book. But actually within that, it's broken up into five different books, right? Uh, Davey's sitting there, he's well well versed in these things. He knows what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. Davies are Davies our scholar. Um, the Bible, the, the, the Psalms are broken into five different books. And the Psalms that we're in at the minute are part of the last book of the Psalms, the fifth book. And these Psalms, they're called the Psalms of Ascent because uh, they would have been sung as people journeyed back to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was on a hill. And so they were literally going up a hill into Jerusalem to worship God, right? And so they're called the Psalms of Ascent. We are ascending. Um, now, they, the reason they went back to Jerusalem, as we've talked about if, uh, the last couple of weeks, is that the, the people of God in the Old Testament, the Israelites, they were commanded to go back to Jerusalem uh, three times a year for these festivals. 
the festival of Passover, which when they were reminded that God had actually rescued them from slavery. So they were reminded that God saves. And then there was the, 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 the festival of, of weeks, or, the, or we know it as Pentecost, whenever God gave his law, whenever God gave the, the law. And, and it was when um, that was to guide who they, how they were to live as the people of God. And so they were reminded when they went there that, that God reigns. That God rules over their lives. And then there was the, the Festival of Booths, which was a celebration of the end of the harvest. So they, it's called the Festival of Booths because the farmers would make these little booths and they would sit in them. And, and, and so they were, reminded, they were reminded that God provides. So three times a year they had to go and do these. So they weren't just, these songs aren't just songs of like a physical pilgrimage back to a physical place. They're, they're, they're songs back to, to God. They're, they're, they're songs of pilgrimage back to God. Right, so one, one writer says um, they are a journey from a long way away to the very heart of God. And that's why we're studying them, right? Because often, like, I mean, for me, like 10 times a day, I find myself really far away from God. And we need to continually and, and repeatedly journey back to God. Um, and that's what these songs are all about. So if you kind of follow them chronologically as we have been doing so far, and we won't, we won't do them all, but we're kind of going to follow the flow of them. It goes something like this. In Psalm 120, which is the first one, it's kind of a, it's a cry, it's, it's a lament of a person who is far away from God. You know, he really wants to be back in close proximity to God. And he's surrounded by enemies and haters on all sides, and he just wants to be close to God again. And then Psalm 121 is this cry for help, right? So the writer looks up to the hills and he can maybe see as he's coming down the road, he can see the hills of Jerusalem and he looks up to the hills and then he realizes that his help doesn't actually come from the hills but the God who made the hills. And then last week, Psalm 122, we see this song of absolute joy and excitement. He's thinking, man, I'm so close to Jerusalem now. It's like I'm standing inside Jerusalem. It's like it's this, joy, this song of joy of being gathered with God's people to worship God because remember, that's what they were going to do. They were going to worship God, to give thanks to the name of God. But then as we get into uh, Psalm 123, it seems like there's a wee change of pace again, right? I don't, if you were listening when Claire read it for us, it seems like there's a change of pace. The rejoicing that we experienced last week has kind of stopped. Now there's three types of category or three types of psalms, three categories that the psalms fall into. There's the hymns, which are songs for when all is going well, right? These songs of like, you know, um, how good you are, God. How, we're so happy, like, thank you, God, for who you are. And then there's uh, songs of thanksgiving. For when the things that were wrong have been put right, you go, so you're saying, Lord, this was the case. Now you've, you've rescued us and, and you've saved us and, and thank you for what you've done. And then there's the category we're in today, 123, is the song of lament, right? It's a lament. So a lament, not really a word we use commonly anymore, but it just means to complain, right? <laughs> Literally, it means complain. So you, you express your sorrow. You say, this is, this is, I'm pinpointing what's wrong here, God. That's what I'm doing. I'm pinpointing it and I'm expressing that I'm in pain. I'm expressing that I'm suffering. I'm expressing that I'm not really happy about what you're letting me go through right now. And that's important because often we think that, well, can I just, you know, we've got to keep our chin up and we've got to, you know, as the New Testament says, do all things without complaining. So how come it is here in the word of God that, that we're witnessing these people complaining, saying, God, this is wrong. Why? And, and we also have to ask ourselves, what went wrong between last week and this week? What's gone wrong between we're so joyful to be together to now saying, all this is wrong and I'm complaining to you, God. I'm going to ask you for mercy. So what's happening? It's as if you can imagine them on their journey to Jerusalem. You can imagine them, they're so excited about the prospect of being there and they're with all God's people. And this would, have been, this would have been thousands of people. It's not just like one or two people. Thousands of people all arriving at the city at the same time. You might remember whenever Jesus is being crucified, that's over the, the, the festival of Passover. And, and, and the Bible tells us in the New Testament, the city was full of people at that time because they've all come back for this festival. So these people are so joyful about going back and then what happens? They're facing scorn and contempt. People have started giving them a hard time. Oh, here, comes these, here come these worshipers. What are they even doing? Who actually follows these old rituals anymore? Who would actually go out of their way to, to, to journey all this way to some city to worship God? Who, who, who does that? It's not, that's weird. 
And they're being ridiculed for it. They're being scorned for it. And then we see the people of God just crying out in mercy. So that's kind of a brief summary of what's happening in the context of what's going on. And I think this psalm for us then in our context answers this question. What are we to do when we're scorned and shown contempt? Right? So none of us really talk about being scorned. <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm not like when someone's annoyed at me or someone's uh, showing me injustice, I'm not like, oh, he's scorning me. We don't really use that word, word anymore. So put, let's put it simply. This psalm answers the question, what are we to do when people who don't love Jesus hate us for loving Jesus? What are we to do when people who don't love, don't love Jesus hate us for loving Jesus? Um, and as we go through this psalm this morning, there's three lessons I kind of want to pull out, and hopefully it'll help us to answer that question. But before we do that, let's pray, uh, because I'm really tired and... Um, We've all got tons of things that will distract us from hearing what God has to say to us this morning. So let's pray and ask for his help. Uh, Father God, we do believe that um, the Bible is your word. We do believe that you're speaking to us this morning. Um, we want to admit that, that we often look to other places for, for wisdom and for comfort and for strength and for guidance and for instruction. Um, but Lord, we need to just look to your word. So help us this morning as we open up this passage. Help us to see what you're saying um, to us this morning, uh, Lord, so that we can worship you more, so that we can glorify you, so that we can live in the right way. Uh, help us this morning. Be with us, Lord. We're your humble servants. Amen. Um, one of my favorite things to do in life, generally, is to eat out in nice restaurants. I don't do it a lot at all, right? You know, maybe once or twice a year I get to do it. Uh, I just love it. I love really good food. I love trying new stuff. I love, I, love it whenever, I love it whenever someone tells me what to drink with my meal. What are you having to eat? Oh, you should drink this one. I love that. Like, I just love it when everything comes together. Um, but one of the things I love about really nice restaurants is the service you get, right? So it's totally different than when you go to McDonald's or something like that, or, or you know, when you go to a really nice restaurant. So a couple of years ago, I had... It's funny, I remember this. It was my birthday, uh, and I don't remember what I had to eat, but I remember the service that me and Healy got in this restaurant, really nice restaurant in town. And um, what happened was um, we were having dinner, we were sitting chatting, and there was a, a, like, like a container of water on the table. And I, I, went to move my, I went to put my hand on the to get the water to fill up my glass. And before I could do that, a waiter was straight over and was like, let me get that for you, sir, and like fill up my glass, right? That's a, just love that level of service, right? But the thing that struck me when I was like, I was like, how did he know? Like, how did he know to just do that? And I realized that because he was watching us, he was looking at us and he was anticipating our needs. And he was, he was looking at like, oh, they're going to need that in a second or they're going to need this. And that's kind of what's going on in this psalm. This psalm is a psalm of looking. It's a psalm of watching. It's a psalm about focusing your gaze on the right place. It's a psalm about studying the right things or more importantly, the right person. Uh, there's this old, uh, old preacher that I love, I love reading. There's no recordings of him because he's uh, two, before the time of recordings. It's called Charles Spurgeon, C.H. Spurgeon. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, imagine that for a name. Uh, and he calls this uh, the Psalm of the Eyes, which is really, really cool. But there's an even older name for this psalm that some theologians have come up with, and I think it's even better. Um, it's called, uh, they've called it the Eye of Hope. I have hope. Maybe in your Bible it's called, in my Bible it's called, Our Eyes Look to the Lord Our God. But, but they called it the, eye of, the eyes of hope or the eye of hope. And I love that idea. And so as we answer our question, the question that we said at the start, the question of what are we going to do when people hate us? What are we going to do whenever people say, you are an idiot for following Jesus? When we start to answer this question, it's really important that our eyes are in the right place. Let me explain what I mean by that. Our first lesson this morning is we need to look to God and know our place. Look to God and know your place. See, this stand starts with one voice, but then it turns into a communal prayer. He says, uh, uh, to, to you, I lift up my eyes. But then later on, he says, so our eyes look to the Lord, our God. And, and, and the reason it's like that is you would often have a, a worship leader just like we have James, where he is, who, who, one person who, or the way Rachel did this morning, who would say, say one thing and then everyone joins in and repeats it or says something in response. And this is what's going on here. And as the, begin, the leader begins this song, this is what he says, to you, I lift up my eyes. 
O you who are enthroned in the heavens, behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God. See, before he even acknowledges that there's something wrong, before he even gets to the part of like what's actually going on or what's wrong with them, he's making sure that his eyes are fixed firmly on God. And it flows really nicely from what we were studying last week. Oh man, we're so thankful to get together to worship God. And that's, that's the posture that I'm going to take through the rest of the week. That's the posture I'm going to take through the rest of the month. I'm going to, I'm going to have my eyes set firmly on God. And then whatever's going to happen, it's going to happen. See, in Psalm 121, he started by looking to the hills, doesn't he? He's looking to the hills, but now he doesn't even stop at the hills. Now he looks straight to God, right? He looks past the hills. He looks straight to heaven because he knows where his help comes from. He knows where, where the mercy and blessing and instruction comes from. He says this, the one who dwells in the heavens. And later on, he says, to the Lord our God. Now, when he says the one who dwells in the heavens, he's not talking about... Um, a physical place, right? He's not talking about some geographical, he's not talking about an address where, where God lives, right? You know, one heaven, road heaven, or something like that. It's not, it's not a physical place. Um, and I think that sometimes we make that mistake, don't we? It's like we think, we imagine that God, we know that God's real and we trust that he loves us, but we think that he lives away over there. And we know he lives very, really far away and it's really, really hard to get to. In fact, you have to die to get there. But in our, and in our minds, it's this place that God is really, really far away. But that's not what he's doing there. He's not saying, God, you're so far away from me. Now, there are Psalms that say that. There are Psalms that say, God, it feels like you're a thousand million miles away from me. But this isn't one of those Psalms. What he's doing here, when he says, the one who's enthroned in heavens, he's describing the relationship between the almighty God who created the heavens and earth and him, the creature. He's talking about how, how greater God is than him. By saying, you who are enthroned in the heavens, he's recognizing that God is holy, that God is other, that God is supreme, that God is far above and far better than anyone or anything in this physical world, right? In short, what I said at the start is, he's recognizing that God is God and he is not. I have all these problems, yeah, I'm, I'm being, people are hating us right now. But before I think about that, I'm going to remember that God is God and I am not. Right from the very beginning, he positions himself as a creature in submission to the creator. I think there's something really powerful about that. It's interesting as well, he says, to you I lift my eyes up. Now again, this isn't a physical thing. He's not looking up to heaven. He's not saying that he has to physically look up to the sky to see God. But it's an expression of, of his attitude. It's a physical expression of the fact that he is beneath God, that God is above him, that God is far, far, far greater than he is. So whenever we look to God, we don't look down to God. We don't look across to God. We look up. Because notice what you do when you put yourself, when you tip your head up, you're putting yourself below what you're looking to, right? By looking God up, he's positioning himself uh, in a posture of pure submission. I don't know if you think about this a lot or if you have thought about it, but, but posture is really important when we pray. Physical posture is really, really important. This is why in the Psalms, we see that right throughout Scripture, but especially in Psalms, the prayer book, our guide for how to pray in the Bible. It's why we bow our heads when we pray. It's why we close our eyes. It's why we get down on our knees. It's a physical expression of, of our spiritual reality, Right? We say, Lord, I'm actually not worthy to be able to, to speak to you. You're far greater than I am. I don't know if you've ever done this, but in the Bible you read a lot about people falling on their faces before God. I don't know if you've ever done that. If you've ever been, uh, if you've ever been uh, so uh, humiliated before God, so in need of his help, that you're actually lying face down on the ground. Let me tell you, if you're lying face down on the ground praying to God, it's really hard to think of yourself as greater than he is. It's really hard to not think of him as being greater than you. See, posture is really, really important when we pray. I'm not saying that we can't pray standing anyway, that you can't pray in the street standing up or can't pray in the shower or in the car or whatever. I'm saying posture is important. Don't close your eyes when you're driving and praying. That'd be bad. And by lifting his eyes up and he's saying, you who are enthroned in heaven, he's reinforcing his position 
He's reinforcing the position of the creation order before he even begins to ask God for what he needs. God, you made everything. What did I? I made nothing. God, you're enthroned in heaven. I'm constrained to this physical body and this physical world. God, you know everything. Even Rachel admitted this morning, I know nothing. She's right. We only know what God has allowed us to know. Sorry, Rachel. I'm saying we all know nothing. God knows everything. We only know what God has allowed us to know. God, you are infinite. I am finite. God, you are almighty. I am weak. God, you are the master. I'm the servant. He's saying, God, listen, before I even tell you what's going on right now, before I even ask for your help, I'm going to recognize that you are God and I am not. And by putting God and giving God his rightful place, he puts himself back in his rightful place. And it's a great example for us as we posture ourselves in relation to God, isn't it? I wonder how much time we spend thinking about ourselves compared to how much time we spend thinking about God. Think about it. How often do we spend so much time and energy trying our best to work out solutions to these problems and how, well, how can I get this person on side again? How can I get them to stop berating me? We're trying to, trying to figure out ways to solve the problems. But I would, I would venture that for most of us, the issue isn't that our problems are too big, but it's that our God is too small. We need to think of, we need to think of, of God more, and, uh, we need to think of more of God and less of ourselves. Because you can never think of God too much. Because he's infinite. You can't think that God, you can't ever exceed in your imagination of how big God is. How great he is. How good he is. How loving he is. So we need to think more of God and less of ourselves. I don't know. I wonder maybe is there something going on in your life right now? Something that you're struggling with. Something you're wrestling with. Something you're desperately trying to find a solution to. Something you're desperately trying to work out. Maybe like the people singing this psalm. It's, it's you're being mocked for your faith. Maybe your work situation is really difficult. Because you're a Christian. Maybe you're, actually, maybe you're actually being treated differently and unfavorably because you love Jesus. Maybe you're having a hard time with family members because you've had to say, oh, hey, I'm a Christian, I love Jesus. And they don't like that. Maybe you've lost friends because you've decided to follow Jesus. If that's the case, if any of those things are the case or similar things, can I just challenge you to ask yourself this question? How are you posturing yourself? How do you posture yourself? You're trying so hard, trying so hard to work these things out, to try and find solutions, but the answer is just stop. Just stop. Let God be God. Let you be you. Look up. Remember who he is and who you are. He's God and you're not. So we need to let him provide for us. We need to let him guide us. We need to let us, him instruct us. He's the master and you're the servant. And this is the illustration the psalm uses. Look at verse 2 again with me. He says, Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God. Now what he's describing here, it's not just a glance every now and again, right? He's not saying, oh, God, you're still there, God, you know, whatever. It's not, it, it's an, it, it describes an intent watching the hand of the master. Notice that he says, he compares it to watching the hand. It's like the servants watching the hand of their master, like the maid servant watching the hand of her mistress. It's like, it's, it's like the waiter in that restaurant watching my hand and when it went to the water jug, he comes over and pours it for me. It wasn't a jug, it was a carafe because it was a nice place. Yeah. And most of us don't have servants, right? Maybe. If anyone has servants, come and talk to me about how much you give me to the church and let me swim in your pool. But most of us, I would imagine, don't have servants. So it's hard for us to grasp this. Now, me and Healy don't usually watch this kind of thing, but it was on TV and I remember it. So a wee while ago, there was a thing on about the queen and she was talking about the crown jewels, right? And I didn't even know this, so dumb am I to, about things about the queen. But she has different crowns for different occasions. And one of the crowns she has is the coronation crown. So she only wore that once in her life, which was when she was coronated, right? And it's a big fancy one with so many thousands of diamonds on it and, and the fur around it and all that kind of stuff. 
And she's the only person in the world who's allowed to touch it, physically touch it. It's only her, right? And the Archbishop of Canterbury who actually puts it on her head. And, and uh, what was interesting about it was uh, she's sitting there with a table with the documentary maker and they're talking about it. And then the servant comes in and he's carrying the crown on a, a, like a pillow, like a cushion. And he comes in and he stops there. Now, then what was, was struck out with me and Haley, we were talking about this for ages afterwards actually, she didn't say a word to him. She glanced at him like that, a little glance, and he set it down. And then he stood there, and then she glanced again, and he went off and did whatever he had to do. Now, that's the kind of relationship that, is, that, that the psalmist is talking about here. It's, it's, it's describing a servant who's so familiar with her master that she, she knows what every wee gesture means. She knows what every wee hand movement means. She has studied her master. She intently uh, watches him, waiting for his command. Every twitch of his hand, every nod of his head, her eyes are fixed on her Lord. And it's her absolute pleasure to wait on him. That's the relationship that this psalm is communicating. And this is how it should be for us. We should have our, our gaze fixed on the Lord, waiting for his hand to move. We should be looking to him and studying him and ready to obey his command. You see, he's not some kind of king uh, who's, and I'm not commenting on the Queen of England, I'm just saying he's not a king who's not going to use our submission to him for his own good. He's not going to do that. He's for our good. He's for our joy. He's for our flourishing. He's not just got a bunch of servants lined up to do his will so he can sit with his feet up all day. He's a good king and he's a father. The Bible describes him as a father. So his commands are like the commands of a good dad who only wants the best for his children. I know we all don't have uh, good examples of what fatherhood looks like in this life, but good dads only want the best for their children. And, and, And God, as our good father, never gets it wrong. He wants to protect you. He wants to provide for you. He wants to guide you. He wants to keep you away from danger. He wants to save you. He wants to teach you what's important in life. And when we live like this, with our eyes fixed on Jesus, well, it doesn't really matter what's happening around us, does it? Whether good or bad, the good or bad things come and, come and go. When your eyes are fixed on your Lord, your circumstances don't matter. You might know this uh, story of, of Peter walking on water. Uh, you, most of you have probably heard of it at least. But what's happening there in Matthew chapter 14 is the disciples are out in a boat and they're crossing the Sea of Galilee. And apparently that was uh, really notorious for storms to whip up there and, and big waves and wind and the whole thing. Don't know how that works, but it does. Um, and so they're in the boat. The disciples are in the boat. It's the middle of the night and there's a storm. And of course the disciples, they're freaking out. And then they start freaking out even more because they're looking out to sea and they see Jesus walking on top of the water. By the way, I believe 100% this really happened. Um, they see Jesus walking on the water towards them and they think, they get scared because they think it's a ghost. Obviously, because there's somebody walking on top of the water in the middle of the night on a storm. What are you going to think? And they think it's a ghost. But listen to what happens next. This is Matthew 14. I think it will be on the screen, 27 to 31. But immediately, this is afterward, after they got scared, immediately Jesus spoke to them and saying, take heart, it is I, don't be afraid. And Peter, classic Peter, love this. Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. That doesn't seem logical, Peter, but it works. And Jesus says, come. So Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? You see the parallels between the flow of that story and the flow of this psalm? Eyes fixed on Jesus walking on the water through the storm. And then you start to notice the storm and then you cry out to God, Lord, save me. See, when Peter had his eyes fixed on Jesus, he was able to walk through the storm on water. When his eyes, when he was looking at Jesus, the waves around him, the storm around him, that didn't matter. His circumstances didn't matter. All he knew was, I'm walking towards Jesus. It was as if he was walking on dry land in the park on a sunny day. As easy as that. I'm walking towards Jesus. It doesn't matter if I'm in the park on dry land or in the middle of the sea in a dark stormy night. And this is just like us. See, 
usually when we find our circumstances too hard to bear, and I count myself so much in this, when we find our circumstances too hard to bear, it's because we're not focusing on Jesus. It's because we've taken our eyes off the Lord. It's because we, we're looking at the, the problems rather than, than, than our Lord who's guiding us through it. So when you are facing these circumstances, you need to ask yourself, sit down, reset, and ask yourself, what am I focusing on right now? Am I focusing on the problem? Am I focusing on the waves coming up around me? Am I focusing on my friends who are in the boat that's getting tossed back and forth and they're freaking out? Am I focusing on the people around me that are, that are telling me I'm a fool for, for loving Jesus? The people that give you a hard time because you want to go to church? The people who, 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 who put you down because you're a Christian? The family member that won't speak to you anymore? Or am I focusing on the Lord? Am I watching his hand intently? Am I waiting for him to guide me? And that's why I think this psalm starts with looking to Jesus first and then thinking about the problem. Because when our focus is in the right place, we can get through anything, right? Jesus promises. God is never going to give us more than we can bear in him. doesn't matter how big the waves are around us. God is always bigger than our problem. And so that's why we look to God and we know our place. He is God, we are not. That's the first lesson. And the next, there's three, and the next two are much shorter, you'll be glad to hear. The second lesson is, we need to wait for God's timing. Wait for God's timing, right? Have a look at the second half of verse two, at the end of verse two. He says this, So our eyes look to the Lord our God, till he has mercy upon us. Now that wee four-letter word, till, that's maybe, for me personally, the hardest four-letter word in the whole Bible. Because I find waiting really, really hard. Just in general and everything, but especially when things are going ways that I don't want them to go. Especially when I feel like uh, uh, things aren't going my way. Have you ever been in pain uh, and you're sitting in a waiting room in A&E to see the doctor and it seems like 20 minutes can last four hours. Sometimes it lasts four hours, but do you know what I mean? Sometimes it seems like when you're in pain, time slows down. Do you ever get that feeling? A few years ago, um, my appendix ruptured and uh, I was taken to hospital and I had to wait. Um, Very gross story, but it seemed like I was waiting to see the doctor for ages and ages and ages. But then I was told afterwards that it wasn't that long at all. It was only a matter of, you know, a few minutes. But in that moment, we're going through pain. When you're suffering, time seems to slow down, doesn't it? It feels like, you know, that's why the psalm is full of this refrain over and over again in this book. How long, O Lord? But what does he do when it feels like time has slowed down? He's looking to the Lord and he knows that he's going to keep looking to the Lord until the Lord has mercy on them. Right? I, I mean, after, it makes sense when you think about it because after all, if what, if what he said at the start of this psalm is true, that God is sovereign, that God is in heaven, that God is, God is, is powerful and mighty and all-knowing and all-wise, then why wouldn't we wait for him? Right? God is sovereign, I said that. It just means that God is in control and, and nothing that happens happens without him allowing it to happen. You see, waiting on God, waiting on God's timing is just another way of, posi- of posturing yourself correctly. It's another way of submitting to God. It's another way of saying, God, you're God and I'm not. My timing may be all, all, all wrong. God, I don't understand this right now. I'm not sure why all this is happening. I'm not sure why I'm facing all this. Lord, I'm not sure if I can even take much more of this. But I'm trusting that you know. I'm trusting that, that, that you're good. I'm trusting that you're far greater than me. And so I'm going to keep trusting you. I'm going to keep looking to you. I'm going to look in your hand. You see, waiting on God's timing is an act of trusting his sovereignty and goodness. Just wait. I don't know about you, but it feels like, it feels like God makes you wait a lot. Doesn't it? You ever get like that? It feels like, more often than not, things don't happen on, on, on my time frame. Things don't happen when I want them to happen. God makes us wait. And here's one of the reasons why I think he does that. Because he needs us to learn to submit to him. Because he needs us to learn our place. He needs, to, he needs us to learn that, that he is in control and that we are not. We needs, he needs us to learn that his ways are not our ways. 
That he's always good even when we can't see, what is, see what's good for us. And it's actually good that God makes us wait. And here's why. Psalm 115 says, Our God is in the heavens, so the same, the same phrasing, the God in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. Psalm 135 says, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. Now, if God wasn't good, that would, just be, that would be horrible, wouldn't it? But it's actually a good thing. If God was limited by not being able to do what he pleases, then we wouldn't want to worship that God, would you? Because he wouldn't be God. What's the point of worshiping a God that's limited by anything? What's the point of that God? So by making us wait, he's stamping his authority. He's saying, I am sovereign. And so it's actually for our good that he makes us wait. By making us wait for his mercy in a certain situation, God has shown his authority and supremacy and sovereignty. And it's hard. I know this is hard. But we just need to fix our eyes on him and wait for his timing. Um... I'm running out of time, but I want to share this example because I think it's really cool. Um, I don't know if, has anyone ever heard of George Mueller? A lot of people know that it's good. If you haven't read the autobiography of George Mueller, you need to read this thing. It's a wee short book. Uh, George Mueller was this uh, guy, a German guy, but he lived in England, and he, uh, him and his wife basically started a bunch of orphanages, and he was a preacher. Amazing. Now, his whole thing was, I'm not going to ask people for anything. I'm just going to ask God. I'm going to pray. So, so even whenever they had no money and no food, um, there's this one story in his autobiography, and he writes it really humbly. It's like he's writing letters to people, and it's pieces of a journal and all that kind of stuff. And someone comes to him. Uh, he says, a dear sister came to me, and she said, do you need money? So straight up, he's in need, and she says, do you need money? And this is what he says. Um, I've committed to not telling anyone about that. I'm just going to tell the Lord. <laughs> so he's in need, and he's like, I'm not going to tell you that I'm in need. I'm just going to tell God. Now, this is the ultimate example of just waiting on God. There's another time when they have no food in the cupboard. And, and, and he's, he's the preacher in the church. And, and so they have the collection plate, right? And it's there. And he could just go. And, and rightly, the money would come to him eventually in his salary or whatever. So he could go and, and take that. But he says, no, we're not going to access that. I'm going to wait until this goes through the right channels. I'm going to wait until the, the elders of the church or whoever it is, like, gives me out of that what they see fit. And then God blesses him anyway. Someone sends him a ham in the post. How cool is that? Gets a package in the post and a big ham. Amazing. But the point is, he was happy to wait on God's timing. He was just like, I'm going to wait. I know this is hard. I know we're in need, but I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait on God. So what do we do when God says wait? Maybe you feel like God's saying wait right now. So another George, George the dog, my dog. Like, <laughs> just as important, obviously. I do this thing with him. I have a treat. He loves his dentist sticks and uh, loves them, goes mad for them. And uh, I'll like come in and I'll put it on the floor, put it on the coffee table or something, and I'll say, wait. Now, purposefully, I don't look at him, right? And he'll wait and wait until I say, get it. Now, what he does during that time, he'll just sit and stare at me like this. You know, he's like, the thing's right there. It's like this far away from him. He's just like this, looking at me. And I'll go off and do my own thing, and then eventually I'll say, get it. And he just gets it. But what he's doing while, while I'm making him wait is he's watching me. He's just watching for a signal. He's watching for a hand movement. He's watching for a word like, get it. And this is what we do. When God says, wait, we just watch his hand. Just watch his hand like the servant watches the master's hand. And we trust his goodness and we know that he's for us. We fix our eyes on Jesus. We're going to read a, a beautiful uh, passage in our benediction later. Jesus is the, he's the beginning and the end. He's the founder of our faith. And so we keep watching his hand, knowing that he is good and he's for us. And knowing that he, is, he has walked this path before us. And that brings us on to our last point. We remember that mercy is of God. You see, they've approached Jerusalem, but they're met with mocking and scorning. Look at verses three and four. You may have noticed that this psalm is, is broken into two halves. Verse 1 and 2 is like a kind of affirmation, a, a remembering of their faith. And then verses 3 and 4 are just like a, a, a request, a pure lament, a pure, Lord, we need you. And this is what they say. They say, have mercy on us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease of the contempt of the proud. The end. <laughs> end of the song. 
They're being mocked. They're being shown contempt, like I said earlier. It would have been noticeable that they were all coming to Jerusalem. Maybe this is people on the road. Maybe it's people outside Jerusalem. Maybe it's even people within, inside Jerusalem. And they're mocking them. They're saying, why are you worshiping God? You're all a bunch of fools. God's not real. Come and worship our God. The people of God are recognized for their behavior. And the world doesn't like it. Now, I wish I could say to you that this is just an Old Testament thing. That, oh yeah, back then, you know, the world really hated people that worship God. But the truth is, we probably all know from our experience and certainly from things we hear and have read and see in the media and all kinds of things, people hate Christians. People hate Christians. People don't see Christians in a positive light. We've all heard stories of persecuted Christians, right? Like I have a friend who's, who's a pastor in Turkey and he's literally been sent death threats in the mail. Actually, uh, I don't have time for that amazing story. Someone was phoning him up, threatening him, and eventually he, uh, he preached the gospel to him every time he phoned him up to threaten him and the guy got saved. Amazing story. But anyway, I'll tell you about it some other time. But, but persecuted Christians do exist and, and, and we don't live in a place where we get persecuted like that but it is really hard to be a Christian. It's, really, it's getting really, really hard to have Christian values. It's getting really hard to have Christian beliefs. We think differently about social issues. We think differently about justice. We think differently about the way we raise our kids, the way we treat other people. Everything we do is different. Christians stand out and the world don't, doesn't like it. But the point is this, we shouldn't be surprised. This is what Jesus told us to expect. So if you're facing this, you're in good company. And this is what Jesus says in John 15. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, then the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So what he said, he said the world would hate us. We're not of the world. We don't agree on politics. We don't agree, how could you anyway, so many different options, but we don't agree on social issues. We don't agree on how we raise our kids. We don't agree on work ethics. We don't agree on so many different things. The way we think about things is informed by the Holy Spirit living inside us as we read the Bible speaking to us. So we shouldn't be surprised that the world says, that's weird. You're a fool. I've literally had people say to me, you're a fool. What are you going to do? We're not of this world. When we face injustice like that, we just keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. The waves might get bigger and bigger and bigger around us, but we're going to keep our eyes on Jesus and walk towards him. But this raises a question for me, and we're so close to the end, I promise. The question for me is, if we're not being treated like this, then why not? It's kind of a a solemn question, isn't it, right? Jesus says the world's going to know that that you're Christians. You're going to be hated for it. So if you're not being treated differently, then why not? As all these pilgrims entered Jerusalem, they would have been noticeable. They would have been recognized as the people who love God and want to worship him. So the question for us is, does the world recognize us as belonging to God or can they not even tell the difference? See, when we're oppressed in this way, we, we kind of tend to go one of two directions, don't we, right? Uh, so we either get angry and defensive, or we try to blend in. And we, we've seen this, we see this in the church in Northern Ireland so much, right? You either get super conservative and put the, the barbed wire fences up and close the doors and don't engage with the world at all, or you just try to blend in. And so you start maybe not reading certain parts of the Bible or giving up on it a wee bit or changing what it means just so that people think you're nice. And, and I, I don't want to, I'm not, by the way, I'm not bashing other churches. This is what I've done. So um, a, a guy I knew, uh, incidentally also called George, that's three Georges today. That's weird, isn't it? I didn't think about that until then. Um, and he was living in Belfast for a while and I got pretty friendly with him. And uh, he started asking questions, lots of questions about the gospel, lots of questions about the Bible, lots of questions about church. And it was really great. And I was like, man, you're really doing it with this guy. This is great. And um, then one day, the question of, uh, what, the, the, question of uh, what the Bible says about uh, sexuality, specifically for him, homosexuality, came up. And uh, I not only shirked the question, I changed what the Bible said. 
And, and I, I, I watered it down and, and, and I, I didn't present him, I didn't present him with a, a faithful representation of what God actually says. Um, and my priority in that moment was I don't want him to not like me. You know, I want him to like me. And I fooled my, and what we can do also is we can fool ourselves into thinking, well, God, I'll just, I'll go easy on this bit because if, if, if I lose him as a friend, then no one will be able to share the gospel with them. And you can fill yourself into the self-righteous kind of way of thinking of like, oh, I'm actually doing this for your good, Lord, so that more people will be drawn to me and therefore drawn to you. But actually what we're doing is we're, we're watering down the gospel instead of, making, instead of letting the gospel be what it is, instead of letting the Holy Spirit be the one that speaks into people's lives. Or we can get angry and defensive. But listen to what Peter says about this thing. He's talking about when people harm us for doing good. And he says this, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, this is, if you're taking notes, it's uh, 1 Peter 3, 13 to 17. It says this, have no fear of, uh, when, even if you should suffer righteousness for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, that is the people who are giving you a hard time, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for, you, ask you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So we should be ready to give a defense and say, this is what I believe and here's why I believe it and it's really, really good and that's why I have this hope in me. But listen to what he says next. He says, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, notice he doesn't say if you are slandered, he says when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame for it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. See, we should meet these objections head on. Our defense is to have no defense. Our defense is to say, yeah, this is what I believe. And it's really good. And that's all I have to say about that. Often the world doesn't respond kindly. And that's okay. We just keep our eyes fixed on him. Finally, I want to finish with this thought. I don't know if you read this and you're thinking, man, these people are being... uh, Uh, persecuted and they're facing injustice and they're asking God for mercy not for justice why didn't he say here Lord you're super powerful you're greater than I am you're the almighty God why don't you come and wipe them out because they're mocking you as well why don't you come and deal with them in a way that you probably should why does he not say that he asks for mercy he doesn't ask for 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 justice these proud people, verse, three, verse four says these people who are at ease, it means they don't even care. It means that, that, they're, it means that they're not concerned with anything like that. They're just like, yeah, you're a fool, and then they're proud. Why not come and wipe them out, God? But I think there's a humility in this, right? Because he's already positioned God as the, the almighty God of heaven, So who in the right mind would go to that God and ask for justice? See, he knows that, as the Bible says, nobody is righteous, not even one. He knows how many times have I mocked you, God? How many times have I mocked people for for, for worshiping you? How many times have I I rejected you? How many times have have I, if I'm to ask for justice, then I'm going to get what they get as well because I'm exactly the same as them. This is why he asks for mercy from God, uh, from God, not, not from the ones who are, are, are persecuting him. Because God is the one who deals out judgment, not us. We don't go around deciding who's righteous and unrighteous. God does that. And all we do is ask for God's mercy. But we have this hope, don't we, as Christians? We, we know that in Jesus, we're going to be found as just. This incredible thing. We have no right. We should be treated like these guys over here who are giving us a hard time. But we know that in Jesus, we're going to be found as just, even though we're unworthy of that. Because Jesus walked this path, didn't he? It's interesting when you think of these, these Israelites going up to Jerusalem for the festival. Jesus once walked up to Jerusalem for Passover festival, didn't he? And you know what happened to him? He was mocked and he was scorned. At first they thought he was great and they received him as a king. But then they scorned him and they rejected him. Even we sang it in our song earlier. Rejected, despised. He was despised. Like, can you imagine being despised? Like absolutely hated for what he was saying and for all that he stood for. But you know what? He endured. 
He endured that. And here's the point. Jesus received no mercy so that we could receive mercy. He endured this. He walked the exact same path as these people are walking in Psalm 123. And he received no mercy from God so that we could receive mercy. This is why I can say, God, have mercy on me, Lord. Because of Jesus. It's only through Jesus that we can pray for mercy and and know that we'll receive mercy. Now, sometimes we get confused with this word mercy, and I'm really done, I promise. But literally what it means is God's favor. It means favor. He's show favor. God, show me favor. God has. Look at this. Look at this bread and this wine right here. Jesus says, take this meal of bread and wine. And I'm going to tell you why. Because when you break this bread open, you're going to remember that my body was broken for you. That my body was torn apart for you. That my blood spilled out. Represent the best of wine you're going to drink. My blood spilled out for you. That's what it meant for, God, for Jesus to endure scorn and hatred and, and, and being despised and rejection. And he did it so that we could receive mercy from God. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that an amazing thing? That we get to do that? That we actually get to stand as, as just and right before God? Because without Jesus, we're just the same as the people who hate us. We have no moral superior, superiority in, to anyone in the world. But what we do have is Jesus. And this is why we celebrate this meal. This is why we're going to celebrate it now. We look to God and know our place. We wait on God's mercy. We know that he is God and that we are not. And that's a really good thing for us. We wait in his time and knowing that he is in control. And that you're not going through anything that he doesn't know about or anything that he hasn't allowed to happen. But it's for your good. And so we can focus on him and walk, walk on water. And we know that mercy is of God and it only comes to us through Jesus. I'm going to get the band to come back up and we're going to sing and we're going to take the uh, Lord's Supper together. But before we do that, I'm going to pray. Father, we uh, sometimes thank you doesn't seem like enough, does it? Um, But we thank you for your mercy. We thank you that in Jesus we have received mercy. Jesus, we thank you that you didn't receive mercy so that we could receive mercy. That you didn't escape the punishment so we could escape the punishment. That you walked the exact same path, rejected and despised. Lord, I just pray, um, if any of us in this room, Lord, are in situations right now that are difficult for no other reason than because we're Christian. Lord, you know all of those circumstances. Lord, you know those of us that are actually going through really hard stuff right now because we're Christians. And it's, it's hard for us to bear and it's hurtful and, and it maybe, it maybe it feels like it's hurting other people as well. Lord, I just pray that we would be able to uh, reset ourselves and to say, God, you're God and I'm, and I'm not. That you're good. You're always good. That your timing is always right. Help us, Lord, to just keep our eyes fixed on you. And maybe we just step out of the boat, do what needs to be done and keep walking towards you. No matter how big the waves are around us, Lord. And, and Lord, I pray for those in this room that, that don't know you. Lord, I pray that, I pray that, that, that we would all uh, just return to you and ask for your mercy. Lord, that, that those who don't know you would, would repent and just, and just say, Lord, Lord, you're God and I'm not. Jesus, you died so that I don't have to. Jesus, uh, you didn't receive mercy so I could receive mercy. And Lord, as we come to your table this morning, would you just remind us again of who you are and what you've done? And help us to leave this place just full of joy, even in the midst of the hard things, even in the midst of the suffering, even in the midst of the persecution and the rejection and and people scorning us. Help us to praise you and keep our eyes fixed on you. For your glory, Jesus. Amen.